And I met his wife, who is a very sort of, um, I'm from Georgia originally, and she's got a very strong personality. And I said, well, what did you think of New Haven? She said, oh, honey, let me tell you, it is cold and God does not live there. (laughs) Uh, Now, the, the first half of that statement is sometimes proven true. And we would certainly thank all of you for having shown up. But that God does sometimes dwell here, as I think, uh, proven by the fact that the Knights of Columbus was founded in this room. And we're very grateful to the sponsorship and um, hospitality of St. Mary's Parish. And we're thankful to all of you who have braved the uh, spring of New Haven to come to the talk tonight. The Thomistic Institute is an apostolic work of the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C., We seek to advance knowledge of the Catholic intellectual tradition in the academy, in the church, and in the public square. And we are very grateful this evening to have Eleanor Stump present for our first major event in New Haven. Professor Stump is the Robert J. Hinley Professor of Philosophy at St. Louis University. I don't think I need to tell anyone here that she is a highly renowned philosopher and Christian thinker. I think one thing that for many of us Professor Stump's work embodies is an ideal engagement of Aquinas from the perspective of contemporary analytic philosophy and an engagement of contemporary analytic philosophy out of the school of thinking of Aquinas in particular and with the riches of the medieval Christian tradition in general. She has, I think, as much as anyone or perhaps more than anyone, brought the wisdom of the Catholic tradition and of Aquinas in particular, to bear on contemporary philosophical disputes in our own age. She has numerous publications, I think many too many to to list here. Uh, They're uh, available on her website. But two books that I think all of us know, her her, her 2008 book from Rutledge Press, simply termed Aquinas, which is a a classic work of interpretation of Aquinas in dialogue with some contemporary uh, philosophical themes and deep principles in his own thought. And her important book from 2012, Oxford University Press, Wandering in Darkness, Narrative and the Problem of of Suffering. I remember a Dominican saying to me last year, I think it was I was on sabbatical in England, that he thought this was the most important work of theodicy written in in, uh, decades. She um, has given the Gifford Lectures in Scotland, the Wild Lectures in Oxford, the Stuart Lectures in Princeton, and she is a member of the American Academy of the Arts and Sciences. For us, it's also a special um, privilege and note of gratitude that uh, Eleanor Stump is a, is a Dominican, a lay Dominican and third order Dominican, and that commitment is at the heart of her own personal work and thought. The subject of her talk tonight is the personal God of classical theism. Please help me welcome Professor Eleanor Stump. So I'm very pleased to be here. I'm grateful to Father Thomas Joseph White for that generous and gracious introduction. I'm delighted to see all the marvelous things that the Thomistic Institute is doing and is going to do, and I'm delighted to see all of you on a cold and uh, icy day. It's really warm in my city. (laughs) It's common among contemporary theologians and philosophers to suppose that the God of the Bible is radically different from the God of the philosophers. The God of the philosophers is generally understood to be the God of classical theism, 
whose standard divine attributes are those paradigmatically given by the great medieval philosophers of the three monotheisms, Averroes, Maimonides, and Aquinas. Some of the current trend toward open theism among philosophers of religion has its source in the twinned convictions that there's an inconsistency between the description of God given by the Bible and the characterization of God upheld by classical theism, and secondly, that the biblical portrayal of God is greatly preferable to the account of God accepted by classical theism. To see the apparent inconsistency, take first the presentation of God in the Hebrew Bible, and consider, for example, the Bible story of Jonah in the biblical book that bears his name. As that story opens, God comes to talk to Jonah, who knows God, and recognizes God's voice right away. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and warn the people that their city will be destroyed in 40 days. Jonah not only understands what God is saying to him, but he understands that it's God who's saying it. Only Jonah does not want to do what God is asking of him. And so Jonah reacts to God's speech by taking ship to a far country. Once Jonah is on board ship, God responds to Jonah's attempt to run away by making a violent storm that imperils everyone on that ship. When the sailors cast lots to see whose fault it is that there's a storm, God somehow brings it about that the lots come out to indicate Jonah. And when, at Jonah's urging, the sailors throw Jonah overboard in consequence, God responds to their action by calming the sea for them. Cast overboard, Jonah begins to drown. And as he goes down in the water, he prays to God for help. In response, God prepares a rescue for Jonah in the form of a large sea beast who saves Jonah by swallowing him whole. Inside the beast, Jonah finally prays to God a prayer accepting the task that God originally set him. Because of this prayer of Jonah's, God speaks to the beast who hears and obeys God's voice and spits Jonah out on shore. Then Jonah does in fact go to the people of Nineveh to give them God's message that their city will be destroyed in 40 days. The result of Jonah's prophesying God's plan for the city's imminent destruction is that the whole Ninevite people repent in dust and ashes. Because they do, God responds to their repentance by abrogating the destruction of the city which he had told Jonah to announce. And this is not yet the end of the story. When Jonah is filled with anger at God's failure to follow through on the message of destruction that God told Jonah to announce to Nineveh, God teaches Jonah a lesson about mercy. God makes a fast-growing plant appear by Jonah and then quickly die. When Jonah laments the death of the plant, then in interactive conversation with Jonah, God uses the example of the plant to try to get Jonah to understand God's actions towards Nineveh. In this story, the God of the Hebrew Bible is so present that they know God and relate to God in highly personal ways. 
For his part, God converses with people, responds to their needs and prayers, apparently changes his mind about what he has told them, issues prophecies about them that he seems to decide not to fulfill, and in general, engages with individual human persons in close and personal ways. You might say that the God portrayed in this story and in the Hebrew Bible generally is very human. When Genesis says that human beings are made in the image of God, the stories of God in the Hebrew Bible bear out that claim. As the story of Jonah illustrates, the humanity of human persons has its correlative image in the responsive and personally present God of the Hebrew Bible. There is a rich anthropomorphism here that the stories underscore and approve. By contrast with these biblical representations of God, to many people the God of classical theism seems unresponsive, unengaged, and entirely inhuman. That is because on classical theism, as it is often interpreted, God is immutable, eternal, and simple, devoid of all potentiality, incapable of any passivity, and inaccessible to human knowledge. So described, the God of classical theism seems very different from the God of the Bible. In this paper, I'm going to try to show that the God of classical theism is the engaged, personally present, responsive God of the Bible. I'm going to focus on just one proponent of classical theism, namely Aquinas, because Aquinas' work contains the representative classical theism that I know best. I'll show that for Aquinas, who is the most frequently invoked proponent of classical theism, an immutable, eternal, simple God is most certainly the God of the Bible. Knowable, accessible, interactive with human beings, and responsive to them. As I will argue, the sense that the God of classical theism cannot be the God of the Bible is based on a mistaken understanding of the divine attributes at the heart of classical theism, at least in Aquinas' version of it. So let's start with the apparent inconsistency. The claim that God is immutable because God has no potentiality but is pure actuality has seemed to many philosophers and theologians to imply that God cannot be responsive to human beings, since nothing that a human person does or says could affect a change in such a God. The facts about God, one might say, are set, and nothing that human beings do can alter those facts. It seems that an immutable God could not answer prayer as Jonah's God does because, it seems, God's decisions cannot be altered by human prayer. A fortiori, since an immutable God cannot change his mind or retract a previously made decision, it seems that an immutable God could not first decide to destroy a city and then decide not to do so because of the actions of the people in that city. Eternity implies immutability. Consequently, many of the problems I just highlighted in connection with an immutable God apply also to an eternal God. 
In addition, however, the claim that God is eternal has seemed to many contemporary philosophers and theologians to raise special questions of its own, because it seems to imply that God cannot engage in second personal interaction with human beings, as, for example, conversation requires. On this view, nothing that is outside of time could engage interactively with a human person inside time. An eternal God could produce timeless decrees, but such a God could not answer Jonah after Jonah has prayed to God, and in general such a God could not be personally engaged in conversation with a human person as God is with Jonah in the story. Finally, the claim that God is simple has seemed to some contemporary philosophers and theologians to imply that at best human beings can have no positive knowledge of God and that at worst God is entirely unknowable by human beings. Unlike Jonah in the story, no human being could know a simple God or be engaged in interpersonal conversation with God. The anthropomorphism of a God who talks to Jonah looks antithetical to the incomprehensibility of a simple God. Even worse, the view of divine simplicity held by many adherents, and many detractors too, seems to imply that God is only being itself, Essa, alone, and not an entity or a being at all. But if God is not a being at all, not any kind of concrete particular, it's hard to see how a human person could have a personal relationship to God and engage in conversation with God, as Jonah does in the story. So understood then, the God of classical theism has seemed to many opponents of classical theism to be not only unbiblical, but even religiously pernicious. Nothing that is not even an entity could enter into any kind of personal relationship with human persons. In fact, it seems that no standard divine attributes, such as being omniscient or being possessed of free will, could apply to something that is not a being. Or to put the same point another way, it's very hard to see how something which is not a being, but which is rightly characterized only as being itself, could be capable of knowing or loving anything. In the biblical stories, there is a readily discernible image of God in human beings and conversely, a readily discernible divine original in God for the image of God in human beings. By contrast, there seems to be so little in common between God and human beings on the characterization of the God of classical theism, as I've described it, that it's hard to imagine why anyone would suppose that human beings are made in the image of a God of that sort. In the Christian world, classical theism held sway for well over a millennium in a tradition that ranges from the thought of Augustine and earlier to the thought of Aquinas and later. Augustine and Aquinas both certainly accept the divine attributes central, central to the characterization of God in classical theism, as I sketched it above, immutability, eternity, and simplicity. And yet it is noteworthy that each of these great thinkers also wrote biblical commentary without giving any indication of unease 
as a combination of biblical stories and classical theism. What is even more noteworthy is that each of them supposes that the engaged, knowable, personally present response of God of the biblical stories is available to him personally. That is, in his confessions, for example, Augustine addresses God directly in second personal terms, and he clearly assumes that God is available and responsive to him. Similar point can be made about Aquinas. In all his works, but especially in his biblical commentary, he shows that he expects God to be engaged with all human beings, himself included, in such a way that God is known by human beings and is personally present to them and responsive to them. How is it possible, how is it possible that these and other philosophers and theologians in the tradition of classical theism could also have accepted the picture of God in the biblical stories? And here's another more fundamental question. Is it so much as metaphysically possible for the God of classical theism to be the God of the biblical story? Is that even metaphysically possible? I want to approach these two questions by what may seem a circuitous route. I'm going to begin by sketching Aquinas' views of the Holy Spirit and his account of the gifts and fruits of the Holy Spirit when it indwells in a person of faith. On Christian doctrine, which Aquinas certainly accepts, the Holy Spirit is God. All the characteristics of God are also the characteristics of the Holy Spirit. That is, if God is immutable, so is the Holy Spirit, and the same point applies to the other attributes characterizing the God of classical theism. If God is eternal or simple, then so is the Holy Spirit on the doctrine of the Trinity. It couldn't be that the Holy Spirit is temporal or composite while God is eternal and simple. And so, here's the point, whatever Aquinas accepts of, as true of the Holy Spirit is also true of God. I'm going to argue that on Aquinas' views of the Holy Spirit, God is as intimately and responsibly engaged with human beings, as knowable and personally present to human beings, as any proponent of the characterization of the biblical God could want. There is no difficulty in seeing that the God of the biblical story of Jonah could be the God Aquinas describes in his account of the Holy Spirit's interactions with human beings. On the other hand, of course, in the history of Christian thought, Aquinas is one of the most influential proponents of classical theism. So I'm going to go on to show why Aquinas' account of the Holy Spirit is compatible with his view of God as immutable, eternal, and simple. Contrary to some contemporary interpretations of classical theism, nothing about these divine attributes, as Aquinas understands them, rules out the characteristics and relations Aquinas attributes to the Holy Spirit. Consequently, both those questions I just raised have an answer. Aquinas accepted the picture of God given in the biblical stories because it did not contradict his own classical theist view of God. And, answer to the second question, he was right. He was right in that assessment. As I will try to show, nothing about God's immutability, eternity, or simplicity, as Aquinas understands those divine attributes, precludes any of the characteristics of the biblical God. 
So let's take a look at Aquinas on the Holy Spirit. You have a handout. It has a ton of the quotations on it. I'm not going to cue you to the handout, but I'll just leave it for you to figure it out. To show the way in which Aquinas thinks of the relations between God and human beings that are mediated by the Holy Spirit, it's helpful to begin with Aquinas' exposition of the characteristics of the Holy Spirit. The very name of the Holy Spirit, as Aquinas explains it, is indicative of Aquinas' views. When Aquinas describes the Holy Spirit in the Summa Theologiae, he says that the name of the person of the Holy Spirit, the name of the Holy Spirit, is gift. To explain this claim, Aquinas says, we are said to possess what we can freely use or enjoy as we please. A rational creature does sometimes attain to this so as freely to know God truly and to love God rightly. Hence, rational creatures alone can possess the divine person. But this must be given to a rational creature from God, for that is said to be given to us which we have from another source. And so a divine person can be given and can be a gift. Aquinas expands on these views this way. He says... God is in all things by his essence, power, and presence, according to his one mode, as the cause existing in the effects which participate in his goodness. In addition to this common mode, however, there is one special mode belonging to the rational nature in whom God is said to be present as the object known is in the knower and the beloved is in the lover. Since by its operation of knowledge and love a rational creature attains to God himself, then according to this special mode, God is said not only to exist in a rational creature, but also to dwell in that rational creature as in God's own temple. In Summa Contra Gentiles, Aquinas makes clear that in his view, God himself, the whole Trinity, indwells a person of faith when that person has the indwelling Holy Spirit. Aquinas says, Since the love by which we love God is in us by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself must also be in us. Therefore, since we are made lovers of God by the Holy Spirit, and every beloved is in the lover, by the Holy Spirit necessarily the Father and the Son dwell in us also. Aquinas holds that this divine indwelling unites a human person with God to some, no doubt, limited degree. In doing so, it makes God available to her to know, to love, and to enjoy. This is a position Aquinas maintains and develops in many places. So, for example, in commenting on Paul's wish for the Ephesians that, as Paul says, you may be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God, in commenting on that Pauline line, Aquinas says, he says, it's evident from the Gospel of John that God reveals himself to one who loves and that he shows himself to one who believes. Now, it should be noted that sometimes to comprehend means to enclose and then it's necessary that the one comprehending totally contains within himself what is comprehended. But sometimes to comprehend means just to apprehend. 
And then it affirms a remoteness or a distance, and yet also implies proximity. No created intellect can comprehend God in the first manner, but the second kind of comprehension is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Apostle means when he says to the Ephesians that you may comprehend, namely, that you may enjoy the presence of God and know God intimately. For Aquinas, then, the relationship between God and the human person of faith, which is brought about through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is a relationship that is close enough and intimate enough to be thought of as a uniting in love. Expanding on the idea that a person of faith is friends with God, Aquinas says, in the first place, it's proper to friendship to converse with one's friend. It is also a property of friendship that one take delight in a friend's presence, that one rejoice in a friend's words and deeds. And it is especially in our sorrows that we hasten to our friends for consolation. Since then, the Holy Spirit constitutes us God's friends and makes God dwell in us and us dwell in God. It follows that through the Holy Spirit, we have joy in God. In fact, for Aquinas, the Holy Spirit so fills a person with a sense of the love of God and God's presence to him that joy is one of the principal effects of the Holy Spirit. Aquinas says, when Paul says the Lord is near, he points out the cause of joy because a person rejoices at the nearness of his friend. It is evident, then, that the God described in Aquinas' account of the Holy Spirit could deal with a person such as Jonah in the ways that any biblical story portrays. I do not see, I do not see, how one could make it clearer than these texts I've cited for you do, that on Aquinas' view, God is personally present to a person of faith in maximally responsive ways, communicating, consoling, comforting, able to share rejoicing as one friend does with another. But equally, I do not see how anyone could suppose that Aquinas is guilty of so great an inconsistency as to maintain this view of God when discussing the nature and actions of the Holy Spirit, and yet also to hold that God is immutable, eternal, and simple, if by these attributes Aquinas means what some contemporary philosophers suppose that he does. If God is not an entity, but only being itself, unable to act as a concrete particular, incomprehensible to human beings, and by nature unable to respond to anything human beings do, then Aquinas' views of the indwelling Holy Spirit are so inconsistent with his views of God as to be, trust me and believe me, obviously ridiculous. And there really are not two Aquinas's. One who wrote the questions on the divine attributes in the Prima Pars of the Summa, and one who wrote biblical commentaries. There's just one Aquinas, the same mind composed both. In my view, the solution to the conundrum posed by seeing that Aquinas accepts both classical theism and these views of the Holy Spirit, the solution consists in recognizing that the interpretation of classical theism on the part of some contemporary thinkers is not the interpretation Aquinas himself held. For Aquinas, classical theism's view of God as immutable, 
eternal and sinful, is not inconsistent with the view of, of God Aquinas presents in his discussions of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's relations with human beings. To begin to see the consistency of Aquinas' position, it's helpful to start with the doctrine of eternity as Aquinas understands it. Contrary to the way some contemporary philosophers think of it, eternity is not just timelessness. The concept of eternity as Aquinas accepts it from the previous tradition is the concept of a life without succession, but with infinite atemporal persistence or atemporal duration, where, of course, duration has to be understood in an analogous sense with temporal duration. That is, God's life consists of a present that is not limited by either future or past. Nonetheless, nothing in the concept of eternity denies the reality of time for us or implies that temporal duration or temporal events are illusory. So an analogy may help here. Consider Erwin Abbott's famous story, Flatland. Abbott was a theologian who wrote this story to help with these complicated divine attributes. His story, Flatland, is a story about a two-dimensional world occupied by sentient two-dimensional creatures. In Flatland, one of these two-dimensional creatures, a sentient square, comes into conversation with a sentient sphere, an inhabitant of the three-dimensional world. The sphere has a terrible time explaining his three-dimensional world to his new friend, the two-dimensional square. As Flatland presents things, there is more than one mode of existence for spatial beings. There is both the Flatland, two-dimensional mode of spatial existence, and then there's the more familiar three-dimensional mode of spatial existence, too. That the sentient sphere is in the three-dimensional space doesn't mean that the sentient square of Flatland is really somehow three-dimensional, or that the square's mode of spatial existence somehow really has any of the three-dimensional characteristics of the sphere. In the story, the two spatial modes of existence, that of Flatland and that of the sphere, are both real, and neither is reducible to the other or to any third thing. And now this point holds as regards temporal and eternal modes of duration. Reality includes both time and eternity as two distinct modes of duration, neither of which is reducible to the other or to any third thing. Nonetheless, it's possible for inhabitants of the differing modes of duration to interact. To understand the nature of the interaction, it's important to see the implications of the classical definition of eternity. Because an eternal God cannot be characterized by succession, no temporal entity or event can be past or future with respect to God, or earlier or later than the whole life of an eternal God. On the other hand, Eternity is also characterized by the duration of a present that is not limited by either future or past. 
Because the mode of existence of an eternal God is characterized by a limitless and atemporal kind of presentness, the relation between an eternal God and anything in time has to be one of simultaneity. Of course, the presentness and simultaneity associated with an eternal God can't be temporal presentness or temporal simultaneity. In earlier work, my teacher Norman Kretzmann and I called this special sort of simultaneity, ET simultaneity, for simultaneity between what is eternal and what is temporal. So go back and think about Flatland a minute. Suppose Flatland is little and linearly ordered with an absolute middle. Well, then there might be an absolute Flatland here, which in the Flatland world can be occupied by only one Flatlander at a time. Nonetheless, if Flatland is little enough, then from the point of view of a human observer in the three-dimensional world, all of Flatland could be here at once. And yet it wouldn't follow, and it wouldn't be true, that all of Flatland would be here with respect to any occupant of Flatland. So, it could be true, both that only one thing in Flatland could be here at once, with respect to the occupants of Flatland, and it could also be true that all of Flatland could be here at once with respect to us. The reason for this apparently paradoxical claim is that all of Flatland can be encompassed within the metaphysically bigger here of our three-dimensional world. And the point of this analogy is to show an analogous point with regard to the present on the doctrine of eternity. With respect to God in the eternal present, all of time is encompassed within the unending eternal present, insofar as all of time is E.T. simultaneous with that eternal present. That is, the logic of the doctrine of eternity has the result that every moment of time, as that moment is now in time, that moment is E.T. simultaneous with the whole life of an eternal God. Or to put the same point the other way around, the whole of eternity is E.T. simultaneous with each temporal event as that event is actually occurring in the temporal now. But it doesn't follow, and it isn't true, that all of time is present with respect to anything temporal at any particular temporal location. And so here's an interesting thing to notice. One consequence of this classical theist understanding of God's mode of duration, one consequence of God's eternality, is that God can be more present to any human person, Paula, than a human contemporary of Paula's, Jerome, could be. As regards Paula, her contemporary Jerome can be present only one time slice after another, you might say. That is, when Paula's 30 years old, neither her 3-year-old self nor her 60-year-old self are available to Jerome. But eternal God is present at once, to every time of Paul's life. And so none of Paul's life is ever absent from God or unavailable for God. On the logic of the doctrine of eternity, it is therefore possible for an eternal God to have the kind of conversation with Jonah represented in the biblical story. 
in one and the same eternal now. Eternal God is E.T. simultaneous with every moment of Jonah's life. And in one and the same eternal act of will, God can will that he make one speech to Jonah, which Jonah apprehends at time T1, and another speech to Jonah, which God apprehends at time T2. God's act of will, which is in the eternal now, can be for effects which are in different temporal locations. Furthermore, it is entirely possible and compatible with the doctrine of eternity that the speech God wills to introduce into time at T2 is a function of what God in the eternal now knows that Jonah says at some time between T1 and T2. So God's eternality does not rule out God's having effects in time or God's responding to things that temporal human beings do. Now you might be inclined to object that even if God's eternality does not preclude God's responsiveness, God's immutability sure does. But this is a mistaken objection. It's true that since change requires time, nothing eternal outside of time can change. An eternal God is changeable, immutable. But it doesn't follow that an eternal and immutable God can't alter his plans or be responsive to human beings. So here's how that point gets established. An eternal, immutable God is not changeable across time, since he doesn't exist at any time. At each and every time, E.T. simultaneous with the one eternal now, God is one and the same. And so an eternal, immutable God can't do anything after something happens in time. But such a God can certainly act because of something that happens in time. So, for example, in one and the same eternal now, God can will to introduce into time T1 an announcement to the Ninevites of the destruction of their city within 40 days. And in that same eternal now, God can also will to introduce into time P2 the retraction of the destruction of Nineveh because the people repented between time T1 and T2. In making this one complex act of will, God is not changing. He's responding to what the Ninevites do, but his responsiveness does not require any alteration on his part. And to generalize from this point, you can see that in one and the same eternal act of will, without change or alteration, an eternal immutable God can will to introduce different effects in at different points in time because of what human beings do at other points in time. And that brings me to simplicity, which is the hardest of all. Some people have supposed that the doctrine of simplicity rules out precisely any kind of responsiveness to human beings on God's part. As I explained at the outset, on the view of such philosophers and theologians, the doctrine of simplicity implies that God is identical to being. I have to apologize, but in my world, all the most important stuff is said in Latin. So we just got to have a little bit of Latin. <laughs> the doctrine of simplicity implies that God is identical to Essa, to being, or Essa alone. On the view of these folks, God must be distinguished from a being, or an object, 
and import us. Furthermore, since etza, or being, is just being and nothing else, God has no accidents. But then, here's the important part, this claim seems to entail that the only things God can do are the things God does in fact do. In that case, it really is hard to see how God could be responsive to human beings. To see why some scholars have supposed that this conclusion, that God can't do other than he does, to see why they suppose this conclusion follows from the doctrine of simplicity, consider that if God could do otherwise than he does, then some characteristics of God would be contingent. They wouldn't be necessary. But contingent features of God would be accidents in God, or so it seems. In medieval logic, an accident is just a characteristic that a thing can have or lack and still be what it is. Since the doctrine of simplicity rules out accidents in God, it seems to follow that everything about God is essential to God, and therefore necessary for God. And so in this way of thinking about simplicity, God would do what God in fact does do, no matter what human beings do. And if that's so, then it is indeed very hard to see how God could be responsive to anything human beings do. But here's the thing you got to know. It is perfectly clear, un, un, indisputably clear, no doubt, no, no quarrel, no debate, that Aquinas holds that God can do other than God does. In particular, Aquinas holds that God was free to create or not to create. God's creating was not brought about in God by any necessity of nature. And since this is so, at least with regard to creating, God could do otherwise than God did. Not creating is therefore one thing that God could have done, but didn't do. And if it's possible for God to do other than God does, then it's possible for God to do something that God does not do in the actual world, or to omit something that God does do in the actual world. And then it's also the case that God's simplicity does not rule out God's responsiveness. It could be true, even of a simple God, that if Jonah had not prayed to God, then God would not have saved Jonah from the sea. In that case, then in the possible world in which Jonah doesn't pray to God, God does otherwise than God does in the actual world of the story. He doesn't rescue Jonah. And since the doctrine of simplicity doesn't rule out such claims, then it also doesn't rule out saying that God rescues Jonah because of Jonah's prayers. In that case, we have what we need for the compatibility of divine simplicity with divine responsiveness to human beings. Now those scholars who suppose that contrary to Aquinas, a simple God can't do other than God does, or those scholars who, contrary to their own views, find themselves stuck with that conclusion, they go wrong because they interpret Aquinas as holding that God is Essa alone, that God is only being. In fact, Aquinas' position is more nuanced and more sophisticated. Aquinas explicitly takes the doctrine of simplicity to imply that God is somehow in some way we do not understand, both Essa itself, being itself, and also a being, 
and entity. God is both Essa and an Iquodest. In Aquinas' commentary on Boethius' De Hebdomadibus, where Aquinas spells out this position explicitly, Aquinas says this, he says, In simple thing, in reality, Essa itself and Iquodest must be one and the same. That is, being itself and a being have to be the same thing. After giving an argument that there can't be more than one thing, which is both Essa and also an Iquodest, Aquinas sums up his position by saying, This one sublime simple is God himself. And later in that same work, Aquinas says, In God, Essa and Iquodest do not differ. That is, in God being itself and of being don't differ. For Aquinas, then, on the doctrine of simplicity, being and of being are somehow the same in God. And for this reason, contrary to what some scholars have maintained about Aquinas' view, for Aquinas, God is not just being itself, but rather God is being which somehow also subsists as a being, a concrete particular, an equidest. On Aquinas' view, it is right to say that God is Essa, being. But this being is somehow also a being, an entity. It's acceptable to say that God is being, provided that we understand that this claim doesn't rule out the other claim, that God is an individual, an equidest, a concrete particular. Those who take the doctrine of simplicity to imply that God is not an entity, but is only being, therefore misread Aquinas' position. In effect, their interpretation takes the doctrine of simplicity to make God metaphysically more limited than concrete things, such as composite human beings, who can do otherwise than they do. But this is to get the doctrine of simplicity upside down. The doctrine of simplicity implies that at the ultimate metaphysical foundation of all reality, there is just Essa. There is just being. But the doctrine of simplicity also applies that this Essa, without losing any of its characteristics as Essa, is still something subsistent and concrete, a particular with more ability to act and with more freedom in its act than any concrete composite entity has. This interpretation of Aquinas' account of divine simplicity also serves to correct the misconstrual of Aquinas' prologue to the question on simplicity and the prima parts of the summa. When Aquinas says of God that we do not know of God what God is, he is not espousing a radical via negativa, as some scholars have supposed. He's not saying we can't know anything positive about God. That's not what he's saying. Aquinas is maintaining only that on the doctrine of simplicity, what we do not know is the quidest, the quiddity of God. As Aquinas explains the same point elsewhere, he says, with regard to what God himself is, with regard to the quiddity of God, God himself is neither universal nor particular. Consequently, with regard to the quiddity of God, the best we can do is a kind of quantum metaphysics, analogous to the physics that characterizes light as both a wave and a particle. 
In some contexts, we can say appropriately that God is essence, and in other contexts, we can say appropriately that God is a being. Just as, in some contexts, we can say appropriately that God is love, and in other contexts, we can say appropriately that God is loving. But neither of these claims rules out the other on the doctrine of simplicity as Aquinas understands it. Furthermore, just as the human inability to understand fully the nature of light is compatible with a developed quantum physics, so the human inability to know the quiddity of God is compatible with a great deal of positive knowledge about God. The doctrine of simplicity is the most fundamental and therefore also the most difficult of the standard divine attributes. And it's clear that many of the details of the interpretation of divine simplicity that I've just given here would benefit from further discussion in order to ward off the objection that this doctrine is just incoherent. But the important thing to notice, the important thing to notice for my purpose, is that this is the interpretation of divine simplicity that Aquinas, that exemplary proponent of classical theism, gives. And if we understand divine simplicity, in the way that Aquinas explicitly does, as perfectly compatible with the claim that God can do other than God does, then nothing about the doctrine of simplicity rules out God's responsiveness to human beings. So here's what I want to say in conclusion. Genesis maintains that human beings are made in the image of God. But the relation being an image of requires some reciprocal relation of similarity. Something X is an image of something else Y, only if X resembles Y in some way, but then Y must also resemble X in some way. The biblical commitment to seeing human beings as made in the image of God makes it reasonable that the biblical God so often seems so human. Anthropomorphism is wrong-headed only if it's stupid. Philosophically literate anthropomorphism is exactly what one would expect of any worldview which affirms that human beings are made in the image of God. Classical theism has been widely interpreted as rejecting any kind of anthropomorphism and as making God totally other than anything in the created world. The God of that version of classical theism is so unlike human beings that it's false even to think of God as a being or a concrete particular. On that view, the divine attributes of simplicity, eternity, and immutability do preclude God's being anything like the God portrayed in the Bible. In the Christian tradition, Aquinas is universally recognized as one of the main proponents of classical theism, and certainly he is committed to the view that God is simple, eternal, and immutable. But as Aquinas' views on the indwelling Holy Spirit make clear, the God Aquinas takes himself to be discussing is the God in whose image human beings are made. Aquinas' God is highly responsive to human beings and engaged with them in personal and interactive ways. He's a God who is a particular friend, a personal friend to every person of faith. And Aquinas' God looks very like the God of the Bible.
The God Aquinas describes in his biblical commentaries and in his text about the indwelling human spirit, Holy Spirit, that God is in fact very human. Aquinas can maintain that characterization of God even while maintaining classical theism because there's nothing in the logic of the attributes of simplicity, eternity, or immutability, as Aquinas understands them, that rules out God's acting in time, responding to human beings, conversing with human beings, and altering his announced plans for human beings because of what people do. As Aquinas understands these divine attributes, the God of the story of Jonah could also be simple, eternal, and immutable. And so, for that exemplary and influential proponent of classical theism, the God of the philosophers and the God of the Bible are the same God, not because the biblical God is, after all, a frozen and unresponsive deity, but because the God of classical theism is truly the engaged, responsive, intimately present God of the biblical stories. And I am done. Thank you. Professor Stump has generously accepted to take questions. We'll maybe do that for 10 or 15 minutes. So I, I, I remember reading in your book the discussion about uh, creation and God and how that relates to immutability and feeling rather confused and feeling confused again listening to you now. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how exactly we can talk about I guess this all sort of gets mixed together, but how we can how we can say that God is both pure act and that God can do other than he does. And that God's act such as creation doesn't imply the actualization of some potentiality in God, or that there aren't other unrealized potentialities in God. Um, and how, how to reconcile these things. Well, the first thing you have to think about is uh, first thing you have to think about is what's a potentiality? I think it's the capacity to receive a perfection. Right, but it's something which could be a power. I mean, potentia is, is the same, is what, which we translate potentiality is also the word for power. It's a matter of having a power which doesn't go anywhere, doesn't do anything. But see, what that helps you understand is that potentiality is one thing, possibility is something else. So that there are possibilities which God leaves unactualized doesn't mean that there are potentialities God leaves unactualized. See, if it, if it were the case that every possibility is a potential potentiality for God, well then, it would be immediately apparent that Aquinas could never hold that God can do otherwise than he does. See what I mean? Because if God can do otherwise than he does, then there are a lot of possibilities for God that God doesn't act for, and then it would immediately follow that there's tons of potentialities. But it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. You can use power completely and fully in what you do even when it's possible, you could use it in some other way. And for God, because he is in the one eternal present, there, because he's not in time, it isn't possible for him to change, and there's no succession. 
So all the power that there is in God is always fully used in what God does in the one eternal now. One undifferentiated, non-changing eternal now. But it doesn't follow from that claim that it wasn't possible for God to use this power in some other way. So if I can ask follow up. Um, how exactly are you distinguishing possibility from potentiality and, and how would you define how would you define possibility? Well, think about it this way. Um, Suppose I, suppose I uh, never dance a jig on Father Thomas White's desk. I mean, suppose I never do that. I, I bet that's a safe bet, actually. <laughs> so there's a possibility which will never be actualized, let's say. Okay, does it follow that I have a power which I don't use? No, it doesn't. The powers that I have aren't identifiable, aren't specifiable by possible ways in which I might use them. I don't have one power for dancing a jig on his desk and another power to walk to the ladies' room when the lecture's over. See what I mean? So that's what you think about. This is your last one, and then we're going to get some earlier. (laughs) I told him to moderate, but he's just letting you go on (laughs) and on. So on this view... Like humans have a power to learn languages, we might realize that power by learning one language, but we, there's the possibility of learning many others. But simply because we haven't learned those others doesn't mean we haven't realized that power for language. That's yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so in the discussion, we have God, the Father from the Old Testament, and talk about God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in us. So here we have Christ, which is not part of the discussion at all, who is very personal and very interactive and with God. So how does this jive with the discussion between God of the Old Testament and the philosophers? Were they for Christ? I'm not sure I understand your question, so you may have to ask it again, but let's try it like this. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So when the Holy Spirit indwells you, Christ indwells you too. Okay, so the person of Christ, I'm saying, there, there's someone who came here as God came here in our form and interacted with us and taught us and established a relationship with us and he made decisions and did certain things and did not certain things and people asked him to do things and he either did them or he didn't and he did them whether it was real or for knowledge or direction. So that's why I, I, I guess... What I'm trying to say to you is I don't get the, the discussion of what, what the... Do you understand what I'm saying? Not a bit. Not in the slightest. I haven't got the foggiest clue. So let me, put it to you, let me put it to you this way. What's the Chalcedonian formula for the incarnate Christ? One person, two natures. Okay? So anything that we want to say about the incarnate Christ, there will be some things to say about Christ divine nature, and some other things to be said about Christ's human nature. And the things that can be said about Christ's human nature are the same things that can be said about you. And the things that can be said about God's divine nature are the same things that can be said about the God of classical theism. 
So we have in the incarnate Christ one person who is immutable, eternal, and simple in his divine nature and changeable, temporal, composite in his human nature. That's Christ. Now, here's your job. What's the problem? Okay. So <laughs> this is what I'm hearing. Maybe I don't get it. But, um, so, okay, so you have the classical theists, and you have the God of the Old Testament. Yeah. And he actually makes decisions, and he reacts to what human beings do. Yeah. You know, he'll take the action, he will destroy Nineveh, or he won't destroy Nineveh. Yeah. Save John, he won't. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and now, the classical theists say that, well, God can't change his mind because he's supposed to be eternal and immutable and, and they make it more complex than they seem. Whereas, I, I just, I, I said, I don't get why they took on that line of thinking. Ah, to begin. now I understand. That's okay. What I'm okay. Okay. Okay, okay, so, okay. Yeah, okay, so this is a great question and I love this question now that I understand it. <laughs> So, so, so here's the question. Here's the question. Look, we've got the God of the Bible. He's a perfectly fine God. Why would anybody bother with immutability, eternity, and simplicity? Who needs this? I like this question. It's a very good question. And the answer is that you don't need it in the sense that you can, you can get through life just fine without it. That is, um, you know, as I mean, if if you thought if you thought God was being itself and nothing else and could never engage with you, I mean, you would have some needs in your religious life. That that doctrine, just like that, is religiously pernicious. I mean, you know, for you, if that was your view, when in the mass we say uh, the Lord be with you, I mean, it would be a whole lot like saying the force be with you. You know, that would that wouldn't work too well. And since God is on that view, completely incomprehensible. You know, you, you, if you give your life to God, you'd be giving your life to je ne sais quoi, which wouldn't work out too well for you. So, so you need the, the God of the Bible, but you don't need the God of classical theism, so why don't we just jettison it? Like this question. Here's the answer, because if you want to do philosophy, if you want to do theology, and you don't take this view of God, you're going to run into a mess in your thinking very fast, you're going to get a snarl, which you're going to try to fix with another complicated thing, which is going to give you another snarl, until your theory has so many epicycles, it's, you know, it's, it, it can't fly. So consider just this. What's the connection between God and morality? Remember the Euthyphro dilemma? Remember that? Remember? Yeah. What's the connection between God and morality? Well, if we say there is none, God just looks up there in platonic heaven, finds the form of the good, and obeys it like everybody else. That doesn't look like a very good connection between God and morality. He's got all the connection to morality that your arithmetic teacher has to arithmetic, which is to say none. That doesn't seem like a good answer. On the other hand, if you want to say, look, whatever is moral is moral just because God wills it, you're going to run into a moral relativism that in no time at all is going to look either totally ridiculous or totally cruel and loathsome. What you get out of the doctrine of simplicity is this. God's nature is goodness. Now morality is grounded in God. There couldn't be a tighter connection. 
And yet it's not tied to God's will. So it's not a, a, a grounding for morality that can be made totally relativistic because God's nature is what it is. It doesn't change. Now we have a grounding for morality that is powerful, beautiful, objective, and it's still compatible with the biblical God. So you don't need classical theism unless you happen to want to think about things. And then you do need it. So what you're saying is, so what, when, when the classical theists took on these questions, that's what they were looking for? Were they being challenged at the time? They kind of no, no, they had a deep insight. See, I would put it, I would put it like this. This is going to be the last response to the cycle, because just because I ask them other questions. Okay. So this is, this is what I would say. Um, up until the time of Christianity, the world had two radically different competitive understandings of the ultimate foundation of all reality. See, think about, you know, we start with tables and chairs, and then we try to, and human beings, and dogs, and God knows what, and we try to understand the world in which we live. And if we're completely naturalists, we take it all back to the elementary particles of physics and the Big Bang, or whatever the current theory of physics may be, and we think, okay, that's the ultimate foundation of reality. Something impersonal. The Greeks thought about the ultimate foundation of, of the world in metaphysical terms, and they thought the ultimate foundation of reality is something like Plato's form of the good, or Parmenides being itself, something like that. That, that idea is extremely powerful in ways I've just briefly sketched for ethics, but in lots of other ways. It's powerful, it's beautiful, it has a way of commanding our allegiance. Um, scores of undergraduates are still introduced to the fragments of Par Parmenides, and uh, there are still a significant number of them that fall in love with Parmenides. It's an idea with power. What we have on the side of uh, the Jews is a radically different understanding that at the ultimate foundation of all reality, there's not something impersonal, but something with a mind and a will that can come looking for you, that has views about what you ought to be doing. And that has a lot of power, too. The Jews sometimes pride themselves on having at the ultimate foundation of reality a real mensch, and they are right to take pride in that. They certainly are. What Christianity does is say, if you really understand the most powerful and the deepest metaphysics of all, you'll see that both these worldviews are right. Because the doctrine of simplicity tells us this. God is love. The Greeks are right. God is loving. The Jews are right. It still doesn't follow that love is loving. Because what we have here is a quantum theology. A quantum metaphysic, see? And that is a very powerful, very powerful worldview. Thank you. Uh, Professor Trump, thanks so much. I really enjoyed the lecture. Um, I was curious if you thought that David Burrell's identification of language as a means of negotiating the analogy of being might be the right step forward in order to avoid sort of a radical um, apophaticism. Well, um, David Burrell is a, an old, old friend of mine. I've known him a long time. Uh -huh. And he is personally very dear to me. Uh -huh. And he's a very good scholar. Uh -huh. And in my view, uh, 
Yeah. I mean, you know it's coming. <laughs> with that kind of, with that kind of beginning. Um, he himself is a representative of the view I'm trying to show is mistaken. Yeah. I mean, he, he and a few others are primary exponents of this view. You know, and I have to say, uh, there was a while not too long ago, and a few years ago, and he and I were talking, and he was telling me um, that he had he had a contemporary Protestant theologian in his sights who was going to get him, mm-hmm. and that he was going to get him precisely on this view mm-hmm. that for for all Thomas it is false that God is a being. And I said to him, you know, David, you might want to have a look at the commentary on the day had the Yeah, where Aquinas explicitly denies the thing that David Burrell was going to say. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, I just don't think that's helpful. Thanks so much. I'm going to take uh, the last question and give it to Christopher. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about God as first mover, um, and if that's a potential solution to some of the questions you were raising on impassibility. Because it seemed to me... If God issues a pronouncement to the Ninevites at time one, and then a different one at time two, is a potential solution to consider what God was doing to bring about the second pronouncement between those two times that he brought about the repentance of the Ninevites? Does that help to solve the problem of how um, God can respond to human beings? Do you think that, that contributes to the solution? No, I think it, I think it um, is... I think that's a good question, but I think that solution, that attendant solution, is completely pernicious. So, so let me give you a rule of thumb. If you've got Thomas's God looking just like Calvin's God, push reset. Something has gone wrong. So, so here's the first thing I would say: if God causes the Ninevites to repent, then He can hardly respond to them. The will that's in them is his will. You can't respond to something if it's your will that's in the thing you were thinking you would respond to. To respond requires that there be something other than you. Now, Garagou Lagrange famously says we cannot read God that way. We cannot read Aquinas' God that way because then we would introduce passivity into God who is pure act. And I would say that goes entirely too fast. So the first thing you want to ask yourself is this question, what is passivity for Aquinas? Gergul Lagrange thinks that God has to cause even what God knows in order to avoid passivity. But if you think about this for just one minute, you can see that this couldn't possibly be right. And here's why. What do we know that God knows? Well, how about that he exists? Could his knowing that he exists be the cause of his existence? I mean, obviously not. And so on. I mean, I won't keep I won't keep giving the examples, but there's millions of them. The solution is to understand that on Aquinas' view of the way cognition works, even you are not passive when you know. What does Aquinas call the intellect? The agent intellect, the active intellect. That's because when you know, you know what you know because it's there. Your knowing is a response to the things being there that you know. And nothing about that makes your intellect 
or your knowledge passive in you because the intellect in you is active when it knows. This is a very good view that he has, in my opinion. In my opinion, this view is validated by contemporary neuroscience about how the brain works. This is a good view about how cognition goes. But if it's true even for you that you can know what you know because it's there to be known, and still there's no passivity in you, then a fortiori God's intellect is active also and not passive when it knows. So it can be the case that God knows what he knows because it's there, because he's responding to what's there, and there's no passivity in him. And in the same way, it can be that God responds to the will that others have, which is their own will and not his will, and nonetheless, he isn't passive in consequence. Now I know, I mean, just in case you think I've got to rush up here afterwards and explain to me about primary and secondary causation, Trust me, I know it was texts, but, um, but nothing about those texts, nothing about those texts, um, has, nothing about those texts implies this Calvinist claim, that God is the efficient cause of a human act of will. That claim is explicitly denied by Aquinas. In fact, Aquinas goes so far as to say, that in giving grace to a human will, God acts on the will not with efficient causality, but with formal causality. A brilliant, a brilliant position that makes a huge difference to the way all kinds of things go in Aquinas' philosophical theology. But that, that's what I would say about that. Now that we've reopened the Diogenes controversy, <laughs> and, yeah, I would like to, you to ask you to help me thank Professor Elmer. <laughs>